Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our conversation with Raphael CEO, Yoav Har Even. But first, joining us is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to take a look at recent aerospace and defense earnings, an update on the budget, the week ahead, and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program. Great to be back, Fago. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's recent 2021 uh, annual meeting and trade show. Um, Byron, uh, let's uh, start off with your take on defense earnings, right? That surprised uh, investors in a negative way uh, on supply chain and uh, labor news. It's always problematic when multiple companies sort of miss like this because investors have a tendency of um, getting getting worried in, in sort of a more lasting way sometimes when that happens. Uh, and so the sector got, got punished. We heard from Ron and the gang yesterday. What's your take on earnings and, and some of the broader lessons you uh, drew from seeing so many companies report and so many echoing very similar themes? Well, I think the, the first point, Fago, is that it wasn't really wasn't triggered by anything new out of Washington, D.C. or regarding the budget. Um, you know, you can go back and look at defense outlays. The, the projections are released by the Office of Management and Budget and then the Department of Defense, the Green Book, uh, you know, back in May. And I think the, the Green Book came out later, <clears throat> June and July. But, you know, they basically showed that <clears throat> procurement and RDT&E outlays were going to flatline in 2021. And then they were going to be down a little bit in 2022. And then they'd start to resume again. You know, they'd show more growth in 23, 24, and 25, um, with the mix also favoring procurement, which tends to entail higher margin <clears throat> type work because they're more mature programs. So I don't think, so, so my starting point, I think this is probably more an issue around analyst expectations, their own estimates, and then, you know, for better or for worse, um, management's kind of hamstrung to a degree by, um, you know, the rules of engagement and their inability or unwillingness to really offer longer term projections. And so there was always this issue about <clears throat> there's not a perfect correlation between outlay growth rates and company sales expectations. But if you looked at <clears throat> what some of the consensus sales estimates were, you know, there was a couple hundred basis point difference between those sales projections and the outlay growth rates. And I think what we saw last week was just kind of a collapsing of those sell side expectations back down to what, a, what an underlying reality had been for this sector all along. Um, you know, there were some other secondary issues. Um, Lockheed and Northrop both talked about the R&D tax credit as a variable. Uh, you know, if, if current law doesn't change, um, these guys would have a tax impact because they'd have to amortize their research and development for tax credits over a five-year period than just taking it as a single-year uh, credit. And that has cash and earnings impacts, although it's not clear you know, where that's really going to land. It's part of the, the Build Back Better Act that's before Congress. Um, so that, that's a variable. Um, 
the supply chain issues I really thought were, were pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you know, I, I would be shocked if this sector got through without any <clears throat> impact, you know, particularly, you know, from their smaller suppliers. But I think the other issue that got flagged and I think is important is just what's going to happen to their workforce, given the deadline for some of these vaccine mandates that's been put out. And that's something that management's discussed, but I don't think anybody has a real good idea about, you know, wh where the ball's finally going to land when all this settles down. Well, um, and, and so on both of those, right? So when, it, when you look longer term, um, a will now that the streets uh, confidence in forecast may have been undermined, right? We're looking at this as a reset button, but investors look at it as when are you going to hit that reset button again, right? Is there going to be another change uh, to guidance? This goes to a management confidence issue. Then you have supply chain issues, which folks think will be more persistent, whether it's with chip manufacture. And then you introduced uh, in one of your notes, the notion that you know, a lot of these defense plants are in anti-vax states where employees may have options and decide to leave defense employment and go and work for somebody else, uh, right? Uh, given that the United States uh, government has uh, vaccination mandates for, for industry now. Are, are, do, you, do you get a sense that any of these are going to be more lasting issues, right? Or well, as temporary start, as I'll management might see them? <clears throat> I'll say it again. I don't think this is necessarily a management guidance issue, you know, Lockheed Martin had never really guided to, hey, you know, we're going to do 5% growth each and every year. That This was just kind of these guys refining and finishing their 2022 strategic plan and, you know, coming up with kind of a flattish number down, down sales and aeronautics. And so, like I said, reflect a, a change that had occurred a couple of weeks ago when you had also this revised um uh, profile or skyline for the F-35. I mean, people who are paying attention should have been able to dial those numbers in and <clears throat> make the judgment call that, oh, you know, consensus was showing, you know, three, four, 5% growth for, for Lockheed Martin. They weren't going to hit those numbers. So I don't blame it as much on management as much as I do. I think analysts just didn't have sharp pencils here. They, they were not paying attention and, and I'm aware of at least one instance where there was an analyst who, at least with Lockheed Martin, kind of flagged some of these things. So um, <clears throat> the Vax thing, I do think it's, and I, I you know, feel this way, or I wrote about it, um, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, Orlando, Florida, um, the Gulf Coast, you know, Pascagoula, Mississippi, you know, these are areas that um, people, people potentially have options uh, particularly if if the rest of the state or the rest of the region is is not going to be enforcing vaccine mandates, and they may well find other opportunities um, in infrastructure, uh, you know, in in the general corporate world. I don't know how you know other manufacturing businesses may deal with with vaccine mandates, particularly if they're smaller suppliers and they're not doing business with the the Department of Defense or the federal government. So it, it's hard to quantify. But I'd still flag it as a risk as we get into the next couple of quarters of earnings. You know, we'll see where we land with this. But um, it, it does strike me that, you know, a lot of these companies have fairly significant facilities in states where there are already relatively low vaccine rates. You've got governors who are, who are pushing back strongly against any kind of federal mandate for, for vaccinations. And so the manufacturers may move and find work elsewhere. And, and, you know, that could cause disruptions 
and execution issues. Uh, and I, it's also been something that's been flagged by, you know, you see the uh, some some of the members on the House Armed Services Committee from Republican red states asking, you know, for the Department of Defense not to implement these mandates on contractors, which I think is supremely ironic when, you know, the Department of Defense civilian workforce has a deadline and then the military services have their own deadlines for, for right. active duty service. So wh why should contractors get a pass on this? It, it just, you know wouldn't make sense. Uh, in, indeed, especially when you've prioritized this workforce uh, throughout the pandemic in order to be able to continue uh, with uh, de defense uh, production that was deemed as, as critical. We've got about three minutes and we've got about three uh, questions. Uh, let's go to the Hill. You've changed your weighted uh, budget forecast. We're going to be hearing from defense leaders at the Aspen Security Forum this week. Uh, what's your take on where we stand budgetarily? And also give us kind of a quick update on, on uh, Senate confirmed appointments. Michael talked about this at the Friday show. You know, it's just kind of where are we with a continuing resolution? Are we going to get this stuff done? And I, I just thought, you know, I lowered my odds for getting a continuing resolution done by kind of the December, January uh, period and push, push that out to kind of March, April. And, you know, uh, we'll see. That That's a personal opinion, you know, but it's also gauged by just looking at, you know, these kind of deadlines that have been set particularly in the House, and they keep getting knocked down. Um, this week, you know, Aspen Security Forum is probably the big event uh, besides all the budget news. You know, you've got the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, speaking on Wednesday. Um, uh, the ranking, not the, the uh, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Reid, is also going to be speaking later that day. Uh, Secretary of the Navy and then uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, are going to be speaking on Thursday, and there's also a panel on defense innovation. All this is going to be streamed, um, you know, for the people who can't attend that in person. Um, and I guess, you know, what I wanted to key off, because it happened last week, but I think it's it's interesting and worth a read, uh, the International Institute for Strategic Studies released their st uh, strategic survey. And, you know, one of the things that has been on my mind uh, that they talk about at length is risk in the United States uh, surrounding the 2024 election and the possibility that you could have a real constitutional crisis if the election is contested. And, um, you know, that's a geopolitical risk that I think uh, people don't always talk about, but it's a UK perspective, but I think it's just something to kind of keep in mind as people think about, uh, you know, what can happen to US defense going forward. And uh, give us your uh, sense in uh, less than a minute. What are the other key events aside from Aspen folks ought to be paying attention to this week? The dominant events this week are still going to be, there are a number of defense contractors going to be reporting. Uh, the Center for uh, New American Security has an event on sustainable Middle East policy that I think is going to be interesting uh, to, to keep an eye on. And there, there are a couple of other think tank events, uh, you know, on cybersecurity. There are some hearings uh, as well on cybersecurity that that's not always an issue that I focus on a lot, but clearly uh, is of interest to your listeners. Uh, exactly. And that's uh, the Homeland Security uh, Committee looking at it. Byron, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago.
And now a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. At AUSA, we met with retired Israel Army Major General Yoav Har Even, the president and CEO of Rafael Advanced Defense Systems. Founded in 1948 as Israel's National Defense Research and Development Lab, it ranks as one of the world's most innovative defense firms. Rafael's American subsidiary, Rafael USA, sponsored our AUSA coverage. Here's our conversation with General Har Evan. Yuav, it's an honor and pleasure. Uh, and I should also note for the audience that Rafael sponsors our coverage here at AUSA. So it's uh, doubly nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to start off with a question that everybody's asking without putting you in a, in a tough position. Um, the, there was a competition uh, that the United States Army was uh, conducting to get a capability that was very similar to Iron Dome. Iron, uh, U.S. Army has two batteries of Iron Dome. It is a combat-proven system. It's been in service for 10 years with the uh, Israel Army uh, and working well. And yet, the team with Dynetics and Raytheon won that competition. From your perspective, what were the lessons learned from that competition? Did the outcome surprise you? And is there still a role, whether for the Tamir missile or other components in a U.S. architecture, especially as you try to sell Iron Dome also to the United States Marine Corps, which has a very similar requirement? So, first of all, uh, we are very proud that the U.S. Army selected the Iron Dome, two batteries, I think it was two years ago, and we deliver those two batteries just in time, as we promised, and we are very pleased and happy that they are going to use it and to deploy them. Of course, the question is, okay, what will be the next step? And we understand that it's not enough to bring the Iron Dome battery as it is, but there are some things that we have to do in order to modify some of Iron Dome capabilities, such as the Tamir Interceptor, uh, in order to integrate it to the US uh, uh, system. Uh, so we were part of uh, a group led by Raytheon, by the way. Uh, we offered our uh, Tamir uh, interceptor and launcher, uh, uh, and we show how it can be integrated to a radar, command and control system, and uh, all the other requirements. Yet, probably it, will not, it was not enough. And uh, now we're in a process in order to understand what should we do better in order to make the Tamir interceptor uh, as part of the solution uh, for the future air defense because we believe that this is the best missile with all the experience. Uh, but of course, in order to, to make it a, a U.S. A system, we should make the, the missile a US, kind of an Americanization right. of the missile. So now we are in a process and I'm, I'm sure that once we will finish all the uh, understanding uh, uh, what should we do better in the future, uh, we will be able to bring a better solution uh, for the U.S. Army because I think at the end of the day, our mission is to supply the best solution for the security of the U.S. Armed Forces, no matter what their mission will be. And our responsibility is to do the adaption between the Israeli version uh, in order to adapt them to the U.S. requirement. 
Um, as you said, your, your partner was Raytheon uh, in that effort um, in, in bringing the system to the United States is, is your partner. Let me ask you about how you are uh, improving the system overall. Um, this Earlier this year was a very, very busy time for the Iron Dome system uh, in, used in a real-world um, you know, instance. Um, what were some of the lessons? Because on each one of these um, episodes, you're figuring out how to improve secret capability, connectivity, you're looking at reducing, uh, improving the vehicle while also reducing the cost because, I mean, it's a very cost sensitive. Even though you're cheap at 18,000 or whatever around, you shoot a thousand rounds, that adds up to real money. What are some of the upgrades from an Israel Defense Force standpoint that you're making to the system to improve Israeli capabilities and as a consequence then will improve the weapon on worldwide market? I think if you look at the history of Iron Dome, at the future of Iron Dome, it's an ongoing process of evolution and revolution. Uh, some of this evolution was you know, improving, you know, step by step, uh, increasing the capabilities. We start with a very short range. We increase the, the, the capability to, to deal with a variety of ranges. And what we are doing nowadays is kind of lesson learned of, although, again, it was more than 90% success during the busy days in Gaza. Uh, so now we have to see what should we do in order to improve the capabilities of the missiles. Uh, what should we do in order to improve the, the command and control? How we deal with a variety of sensors? Uh, maybe we should add some other capabilities to the system, uh, such as uh, high energy uh, capabilities that will be part of the, uh, uh, the Iron Dome uh, in order to uh, increase the capabilities, decrease the cost and become much more effective against a variety of threats with a variety of ranges. And, and when you say high energy, what does that mean, the high energy variant? It means that, uh, and it was published also in Israel, that we were uh, selected to develop uh, the next uh, laser solution that will be integrated to the air defense system. Right. Uh, we see it as a complementary solution it cannot be it cannot solve all the problem at the end of the day the name of the game is how you develop a system and not a solution that go point by point right uh, because uh, the brilliance of iron dome is that it doesn't shoot when it's not going to hit uh, either a populated area or the or, or an important target uh, which changes the dynamic and if you can put and supplement that with a laser system uh, it's the cheapest of all weapons once yeah. once you get it right right you're just shooting a beam yeah. of light you just have to select the right uh, interceptor. Right. It can be kinetic or non-kinetic. Right. Uh, and yeah, hopefully it will be, you know, I think it will be, uh, we will be able to, to go and, and to show it or to make it operational. It will not take us decades. Right. Uh, and obviously, uh, you have uh, a laser uh, system already deployed uh, in Israel as part of uh, the uh, air, air defense uh, overall network. And I also think that the targeting solution becomes a lot easier with a beam of light than shooting a missile and another missile. Well, yeah, it's it's I, I, it's not only the the the, the beaming. It's 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 quite of uh, you know. I think the beauty is that we take the the, the Iron Dome with the variety of sensors how you uh, uh, take all those sensors and, uh, and get fuse all, uh, fusing all the data and then select the right solution. 
this is the beauty. Now the question is how many uh, effective effectors I will have in the system. And the laser will be part of it. Um, let me um, ask you, I have a bi-American question I want to ask you, but the next question is the Joint All Domain Command and Control System is the number one priority for the U.S. military to better integrate air, land, sea, space, cyber forces. Um, you play a critical role in battle networks in Israel as well. What are some approaches, right, because ultimately it's a combat cloud system, yeah. But then each one of the nodes are very, very important. You have legacy uh, radios, for example. You need some futuristic stuff. You need it to be very, very secure. From your standpoint, what are the key architectural elements, right? This administration is taking a pause to reconsider what it should look like. What are some Israeli lessons the United States can learn from in building its own architecture from your standpoint? I don't think that I'm in a position to tell them what should they do. Our uh, uh, attitude is to understand that when you speak about open architecture, it should be really open architecture. The, by the way, it's very easy to test it. Uh, the challenges of communication system become much, much more, uh, uh, they're going to be bigger and critical in any solution that you have. So if you really have a good communication system that allows you to transfer voice, data, uh, uh, video on the same time uh, with a lot of data uh, in a tactical environment, it's not enough. You should develop it in a way that it will be a real open architecture. By the way, it's very easy to test it. You just have to challenge whoever tell you, hi Evan, idea of open architecture, it was already developed. Just now, let's see that it's integrated to legacy system and to the future system and to third party uh, uh, supplier. Uh, and, and this is the most important thing to make sure that your system are really open architecture. Then you can integrate it, everything. And you know, when you speak about the cloud, the cloud is just, it's, it's not something that you said, okay, I would like to develop a cloud for developing a cloud. This is a new way that you can use, you can spread all the information to whom it's relevant and do a lot of, of uh, uh, analysis and, and, and go and overcome of the capacity of storage or local storage. And how do you deal with the bandwidth issue, right? Because nobody has as much bandwidth as they need. An army unit, for example, that's in a valley ends up being bandwidth constrained, whereas an airplane or a ship is less constrained. How do you think through the bandwidth challenge? I think that our solution, that's a software-defined radio, the BNET, what we call the BNET, is maybe the most, uh, uh, technology-wise, the most advanced solution that can use the old spectrum, allow you, allow you to steer on the entire spectrum and to optimize, without a man in the loop, how to use the old spectrum. If we will continue to use the spectrum in slices, will not be able to overcome with all the data. This is our solution. We think it works. Uh, and by the way, it started because we started with missile communication, and then we come to this tactical uh, communication system. Hopefully, we'll be able to, to, to show our capabilities in Israel, in the United States. Uh, and, and this is the way to overcome, because at the end of the day, it's all about communication. It's very similar to what we are facing in our daily life. Uh, you want your cellular phone 
without going to brand and names, you want to have all the time, all the information, voice, video, and data. The difference is that when we are working on the civilian arena, you have a lot of base station that build the, 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 the network. Now you have to do it on the move, in a tactical environment. And we think that our solution works. How, for sure it works. How, mu how much of this is a cultural, right? So operators have for decades become used to a very permissive environment, for example, from a US perspective. Whereas the challenges US is, the United States is looking at for the future is China, Russia, where there will be emissions denied environments. What's the cultural training human element that has to be different to get the most out of a network that will become under attack in the electromagnetic spectrum, cyber, space, kinetically? I, think it's a, I don't think it's a question of the human, human uh, interface. At the end of the day, people now that operate all the system are much more flexible much more technology, uh, uh, technology uh, attitude. Uh, the question is, where is the point that you take the man out of the, the loop and make him uh, concentrate on decision making instead of hard worker? Uh, and this is something that is not only communication, it's all the, the things that we are facing with the uh, use of the data uh, uh, algorithm, AI, big data, all those buzzwords. The question is, how you take all this buzzword and put them into a, a, a military use in a very tough environment? And let the machine do most of the decision. Uh, and this is, I think the future is going to be of adding these AI capabilities to everything that is relevant uh, and this is that, by the way, is going to be the edge uh, of all the system. Let me ask you one last question about Buy American. Um, the American administration and President Biden has made it clear that if American tax dollars are going to be spent on major infrastructure projects or, or even for weapon systems, the money should stay in the United States. Um, but the problem or the challenge is that the United States actually benefits from a global technological ecosystem with its allies and partners. Uh, during Iraq and Afghanistan, it was Israeli armor and technology uh, and unmanned systems that proved to be game-changing capabilities for the United States. Uh, and that's even before the highly classified systems uh, that we've benefited from mutually. What's, what's your concern as the chief executive of an important company that is a technology developer, are you concerned about the rhetoric and are you seeing any change? Because some people saw the decision on Iron Dome as potentially a Buy American decision. Obviously, everybody sees in decisions like this whatever they want to see, but from your standpoint, are you concerned and what's the right balance maybe, um, you know, or a case that you can be ma you're making for greater openness perhaps or globalism? Well, I think that Buy America is not a unique uh, case in the United States. You have it, by the way, all over the world. If you go to India, you have the Make in India that was declared by Modi, uh, the Prime Minister, five, six years ago. And we are very uh, aware of the needs everywhere to go what we call local and, and go for local. So our challenge and our mission is to convince everyone that we are willing 
to transfer the know-how, you know, keeping our IP and do it very uh, in a in very sensitive way, uh, and and we all, we have we have done it already all over the world. So we will do it also in the United States. For example, we are teaming with the companies, local companies. We are establishing our own entity that will be a U.S. entity, fully classified, 100% owned by us, that will allow us to transfer the know-how with the special security arrangement. So it's not, a, it's not new for us. Uh, and by the way, it will even make sense that everyone wants to produce and to control uh, the, the supply chain, uh, the maintenance, the ILS, the technology. So now we have, and we already started to do it a few years ago, uh, and we have to uh, Americanize the relevant system according to what the customer wants to do. And there is a variety of things that you can do. You can do it with the tier one companies, you can do it with by yourself. It's only a question of understanding what are really the uh, uh, requirements, what is the policy, and we, we are fully flexible uh, and understand that we have to do it again. We have done it in the past, we've done it all over the world, we'll do it also in the United States. Yoav, thanks very, very much. It's always an honor and pleasure talking to you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.